You're listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing legal questions. Attorney Bill Powers sits down with some of today's leading legal minds to discuss everything from legal issues and legislation to practice tips and policy. Now, here's your host, an NBTA board-certified criminal law specialist, former president of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice and renowned trial lawyer, Bill Powers. Good morning, and thank you for downloading Law Talk with Bill Powers and listening in. Our goal is to provide top-notch, helpful, and interesting content to you and others. In addition to adding podcast stations to easily access and download episodes, we've also recently upgraded providers and are now hosted on Captivate.fm. Law Talk is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Google Podcasts. If there's a format or station you would like us to add, please let us know. To that end, please email us at lawtalkwithbillpowers at gmail.com. Again, that's lawtalkwithbillpowers at gmail.com. We'd also really like to hear your suggestions for topics of discussion and guests. If there is someone you'd like to hear as a guest, please tell us. Ours is a listener-centered podcast. We're open to ideas on content, hoping to provide down-to-earth perspectives on the law, lawyering, and legal issues. And for the record, Law Talk is a group effort. It's not just some guy sitting at a microphone. I'd like to give a special shout-out to my friend Rob Ingalls at lawpods.com. Without Rob's guidance and support, we would not be able to do this. I also want to thank my staff at the Powers Law Firm and Ray Sips of Marketing, both in Charlotte for their background help and giving me the time and ability to do what I love. Please tell others about our podcast and thanks again. This morning, my guest is someone I've known for 30 years or more. Our lives have tracked one another in some ways serving as opposite reflections in a mirror. And yet, I don't think we've seen each other much face-to-face since that hot summer day in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina, and graduation from Campbell Law School. John Nunnally is one of the most widely respected and best-known lawyers in Raleigh. John graduated from NC State in 1988. I graduated from NC State in 1988. John has a senior student-athlete in high school. I have a senior student-athlete in high school. John has dedicated his professional life to courtroom advocacy with more than 75 jury trials under his belt. I don't know how many trials I've handled in both district and superior court jury trials. I know it's a lot. John is dedicated to teaching young lawyers and is a sought-after presenter at professional legal conferences and CLE, which for non-lawyers is the acronym for Continuing Legal Education. As one of the best lawyers in North Carolina, John not only teaches other lawyers. That's really something. If I weren't actively engaged in the practice of law, I think my career choice would be teaching. And while we share many similarities, our paths have gone in different directions. John lives in Raleigh. I'm from the great state of Mecklenburg in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm a former president of the Plaintiffs and Criminal Defense Association, known as the North Carolina Advocates for Justice. And John is a partner at Ragsdale Liggett, known not just in North Carolina, but nationwide as a premier insurance defense law firm. John's practice is focused on civil litigation and insurance defense, particularly construction, transportation, premises liability, and product liability. John helps architects, engineers, and other design professionals, defending them against professional negligence claims. His transportation practice, law practice, excuse me, is concentrated on defense of trucking companies. 
John re regularly and routinely lectures to multiple national, regional, and local audiences on legal matters, including and for Defense Research Institute, Claims Litigation Management, American Council of Engineering Companies, the American Institute of Architects, the Construction Defect Claims Managers Association, and the North Carolina Trucking Association, and there are many annual conferences. His speech topics include issues related to risk management, professional liability, indemnity, standard of care, claim trends, and other timely legal issues. John also frequently leads continuing education seminars for the insurance industry. His professional accolades, just to name a few, and there are a lot, include an AV preeminent peer rating by Martindale Hubble, Best Lawyers in America, 2020 Lawyer of the Year Construction Litigation in the Raleigh Metro region, which is absolutely spectacular. Uh, best Lawyers in America, uh, listing construction law, construction litigation, and commercial litigation. The Super Lawyers North Carolina Magazine uh, in uh, construction litigation. Business North Carolina Legal Elite in construction law. And like uh, the other best lawyers I know, John Nunnally is also clearly active in the community outside the practice of law, having received the Walter Zeller Fellowship Award and the Kiwanis Club of Raleigh. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing well. John, thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning. I'm truly honored to have you as a guest on Law Talk. I've always it's an honor to be here. Oh, I'm glad to have you. Uh, I've always respected and admired you watching your successes and personal life, although it is has been somewhat from afar. I truly enjoy seeing you on Facebook, uh, you attending basketball games to watch your son play, and seeing all the different CLE presentations you've made over the years. Uh, we too come from uh, separate worlds professionally. I do criminal defense and plaintiff's work. You're the go-to guy for insurance defense issues. We went to the same law school, literally, and graduated together. Some would say, at least generally as professionals, and for the record, I don't think we've ever had a case against one another, we serve diametrically opposed interests. To some extent, I'd probably disagree with that. Uh, I think we serve justice, help people, and resolve disputes in a peaceful fashion, subject to the rule of law. And just uh, we just do so in different ways. I want to make it abundantly clear I respect you and the work you do, and I think that's part of being professional. And I sometimes think that outsiders don't always understand that. It's possible not just to be friendly, uh, but to be friends with opposing counsel. Uh, so it's possible to dis disagree even sometimes vehemently and still respect and even like your adversary. What are your thoughts on that, John? I totally agree. And I've found some, you know, my best friends or people I go into heated battle with on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. It's, you know, I, or my circles tend to run in uh, the legal community and uh, uh, most of the le lawyers are on the plaintiff's side or on the other side. So they're not a lot of us who do insurance defense or civil mm -hmm. litigation defense. So it's, it's not unusual. And it's funny that when I first started out, everybody would tell me how back in my day, everybody used to be much more professional. And I kind of feel that way now, 30 years later, how when we first started, it seemed we were a little more cordial. However, I think there's still a lot of cordiality when you look around for it. And I still think there is a degree of respect. However, it certainly has become, in some respects, more um, adversarial and a little harsher. But I think the best lawyers can look past that and see that it's a profession and you're representing the interest of your clients and you don't need to make it personal. Absolutely. In fact, I think sometimes um, 
Well, there's a there's an old proverb said for lack of wood, a fire goes out and a kind word turns away wrath, meaning that uh, someone may be having a bad day. And uh, and you, if you go the extra mile, the extra effort, it really goes a long way. Uh, what do you see as the role of lawyers relative to justice and resolving disputes? You mentioned that things have changed over the years uh, and, and we do we're courtroom lawyers. Uh, but before we get to the courtroom, there's a role of lawyers. What do you think about that? It's That's an interesting point. And it's certainly changed even in the years that we've been practicing, although I like to say it's not that long. But when I look at my bar number compared to the new people we hire, it's apparently getting a long, long time. Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, mediation has now become mandatory. That was something that was just in its infancy when we started practicing in a few counties. Now it's, of course, mandatory to try to resolve cases before they ever reach trial, and that's been very successful. Uh, used to mandatory settlement conferences, um, non-binding arbitration, and other ways to kind of alleviate the need for jury trials. So there certainly has been an effort to get cases resolved in a um, less adversarial, adversarial manner than when we started practicing law, and I th- think that's it's been a good evolution over the years. It's, it's been interesting to see just even in the three decades we've been practicing what has happened and how, how I don't know how people getting out now are trying the cases that we got to try when we first started because there are so many uh, barriers to ever getting to a jury trial now compared mm-hmm. to when we started. It's interesting. Right. Well, um, hmm, that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought about it. And it's probably for a, a lot of different reasons, including there are more lawyers out there. There have been stopgap measures put in place to try to avoid the courtroom litigation. And as our population centers have grown, uh, and I've I've tried a case or two in Raleigh, but not a lot uh, compared to Charlotte, but um, the dockets just aren't as open as they used to be. Is that is that true? And you you go all over the place, right? I do. Yeah. In fact, yes, quite a bit. In fact, I'm licensed in Georgia now, too. We opened a Florida office, so I actually get down to Georgia a bit now, too. And that's been a real eye opener, how differently they do things down in Florida and Georgia compared to North Carolina. So it's interesting. I still like the way we do in North Carolina. I think we have an excellent system here. And people may complain about it, but I I do get to see it a lot of different places and ways. And I candidly, I'll give props to Charlotte. I've practice you know when I first my first seven years I was in Gastonia mm-hmm. so I was in Charlotte a lot and I always thought Charlotte ran it very well although there definitely was the feeling of the great state of Mecklenburg compared mm-hmm. to the rest of the administrative office of courts but you know getting back to the original question I, I, I do think lawyers are you know an administrative justice one of the important cogs and there's a way when you're handling a case uh, you know you can go into it adversarial you can go into it looking for ways that it you can reach a resolution. You're never going to agree, but can you reach a common ground or allow the dispute to be resolved? And it's that's an interesting approach. I see some attorneys, even on the defense side, in fact, probably especially on the defense side, who it's almost a scorched earth. It's you know the need to win versus a, a way to resolve the case. And just not sure that's really beneficial for either the client, the company, the plaintiff, or any of the parties or the court system. So. I mean, I'm certainly prepared to take a case to trial if I need to, but there's no reason that you can't look for some way that it can't be resolved. And that's part of the reason I think mediation has been so successful with a good mediator who can listen for a long time and work on a problem. Hopefully you can resolve the case after the parties have had a chance to fully explore their their issues and the case in chief and know when you sit down at mediation, 
it should be almost to the point of trial mm-hmm. where you're really ready to talk about it and hopefully see if there is a way to resolve it. Well, I'll be honest with you. Um, my view on mediation, at least the way I do it, and everyone has their own way of doing it. Um, I, I treat mediation like a trial because I fully intend on settling it. And it's to me, if we can't settle at mediation, there's really not a whole lot of extra work to do other than maybe, you know, practice on my, my narrative or the issues or, um, you know, focus on things that are more important to the case as opposed to what I may necessarily think that's important. I don't disagree. And that's a good point. And I try to take it in that approach too. I, I like if we don't settle the case at mediation and we go to trial that you have risk on your, if you're the plaintiff and I'm on the defense side, I hate when I have clients, I rarely have that now mm-hmm. where we are with the type of cases I have, but early on who didn't want to offer anything or wanted to offer negligible amounts that made it, uh, there's no downside on the plaintiff side at that point to taking the case to trial. Why not take it to trial if you're not going to make an offer? I want to make an offer that I think is fair and reasonable under the circumstances. And there's risk on the plaintiff side if they try the case. So if we go try the case, it's a situation where, I mean, they have actually something to lose. I and mean, give them something to think about before trying the case or deciding mm-hmm. to take it to 12 people and let to decide their case but that can get difficult i mean i won't name individual insurance companies you know who mm. obviously who want to offer nothing or a dollar or something it's like well you're really making the plaintiff's decision easy on that case roll the dice I mean. yeah especially the um I, I don't know if i've ever got a dollar offer um i will say that when you do that you're 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 baiting the person for lack of a better term and, yeah, that's a good point yeah you're right why not i mean you're gonna say, yeah and, and you, do, you just don't know how it's going to go in trial, what's going to be allowed in, what's not going to be allowed in, how people are going to do. But again, I mean, I want there to be some risk or downside. Um, mm-hmm. If you take the case to trial, you're turning down an offer. I mean, I, and I get the theory that you don't make an offer on every single case. I mean, otherwise, you're just encouraging lawsuits. However, mm-hmm. those should be disposed of through motions if you feel that strongly about it. If you, should, if you feel so strongly is no offer to be made, then go prevail on summary judgment. Right. And you brought up the next point, actually, my next question for you. Um, you have uh, more than 75 jury trials, which is a, um, that is a just wow number. <laughs> so um, that is incredible. Uh, but I don't know, and, and we have a fair number of law students and people interested in the law that, that listen into this. Uh, that is the uh, the pinnacle, the the tip, if you will, the iceberg, because to get to a jury trial, I can only imagine how many motions you've done, whether it's a 12B6 or some evidentiary issue. Uh, there are, there must be thousands of depositions you've done and hundreds of thousands of interrogatory questions you've posed. And, you know, with civil litigation, it's not just a deposition. It's not just an interrogatory. You have requests for productions of documents. You have requests for admissions. Uh, that's a that's a tremendous amount of background uh, work. Um, and, and for me, my legal advice is, is predicated as much on the losses as the wins, and probably the losses have been um, more helpful in helping me decide whether I should take something to trial. They've done studies on this, actually, where they found that younger lawyers, uh, and I don't mean young in age, I mean uh, less experienced lawyers, tend to be overly confident about how things are going to proceed at trial. Uh, I describe it sometimes as um, I see 
uh, younger lawyers picking up the tail of the snake, not understanding their fangs attached to the other end. Right. Um, what do you think um, the courtroom uh, purpose is? I and, and we've talked on this a little bit, but is some people think it's a must and some think, people think it's something to be avoided at all costs. I think it's somewhere in between. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'd agree. It's somewhere in between. I mean, you don't want to say you're never going to trial. The problem I have now, as I've gotten older and more experienced, is I, I tend to just handle the really big cases, mm-hmm. bet the company type cases. So it is rare I take them to trial now. That's funny. My 75 or plus trials I've done, most of those earlier in my career when there were a lot of auto wrecks, slip and falls, um, ones that were not uh, betting the company type situations. Now, I've taken some of those to trial. But in the last few years, I've probably tried three or four. It's it's not as often. I mean, there was I can remember one month before I left my old firm where I had a trial each week, one month for four straight weeks, and that that gets wearing on you because even a small auto wreck case still takes a lot of prep, as you know. I mean, you still have to go through the same motions, whether it's a million dollar case or a ten thousand dollar case. There's a lot of work involved in it, but it is it, it definitely has uh, segued over, but. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like I looked just to take everything to trial. It, it was a matter where we'd made a fair offer under the circumstances. But I do want to get back to your point about the losses. Uh, there's no question that in cases that I've lost or things that have gone poorly, I have learned from. Those are the ones that have stuck with me to not make that mistake again. And I have definitely taken that into trial. There was one, I did a trial where I regretted how I did my closing. And I said, I'm never going, it was too it was too apologetic, I thought. I should be, if I'm going to make the argument, and make my argument to the jury and allow the chips to fall where they may. And so the, like two weeks later, I had another trial, and I did exactly that. It was a much more aggressive argument. And uh, the judge and jury both were like, oh, that was such a convincing and compelling closing argument. And since that time, I've done my closings like that continually. And it was interesting, because if I hadn't done that poor closing argument, would I have realized how I needed to shift and change my tactics? Probably not. I, I know one of my early briefs, I had not properly shepherdized the case that had been overruled like a week before. And I have now, there's not a case I filed that I don't double check the sites on anything I I file now because <laughs> you know, I'm not going to go through that embarrassment again of a case being wrong. So, uh, John, I fear uh, that's old school Socratic method. <laughs> 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 um, uh, and I mean no insult to saying this to anybody, uh, but I, I don't know how many people actually know what shepherdizing the case means anymore. True, true. Um, well, uh, and just for the uninitiated, uh, when it, when courts of appeals come out with opinions, uh, sometimes they reverse other cases. And shepherdizing was a methodology when and John and I are analog paper and pen people. Yes, uh, we would go to books. In, in the stacks in the library. That's what we called uh, the law library where they had the shelves. And we would check to see if other courts had reversed or added to um, opinions. And now they do that election somewhat. Uh, some of the uh, legal research companies will have a, a flag, meaning a red flag means it's been reversed. Yellow flag means it's uh, 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 there's some, some issues not clear, but uh, yeah, there's nothing like, um, uh, really being, you know, crash and burn to, to teach you to, um, you know, look at your instruments and be careful. 
Well, like you said, it's so easy now on the computer to check it. It right. just takes no time. It used to be going from book to book to book to make right. sure, and now it's a simple matter of, and that's back when I did mess up. But right, right. Now there's just no excuse. So Right. It's interesting. Sorry to get into too much. Legal. No, 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 no. That's, I, I, no, I think a lot of our listeners really like that. Um, you know, I know a lot about plaintiff's lawyers, criminal defense lawyers, family law attorneys, and um, um but I know nothing or almost nothing about your professional world, at least the culture of your world. Um, is there a personality type or skill set that is common to insurance defense? Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. And I'll, I'll go back to Campbell. When we did the trial ad advocacy program at Campbell, when we did our trials, mm-hmm. and we had, you know, had to do a criminal trial and a civil trial. And I was actually plaintiffs on the civil trial. And the judge... I don't remember who it was now, who said at the time, after I did my closing, and he said, you know, you'd make a really good insurance defense attorney. <laughs> you send a, mm. you just are looking at it matter-of-factly. You're not doing the passion. You're not doing the argument. And I've noticed that as well, how we look at cases and how we present them. There is a difference in the culture of that. Like I mentioned before, I was at the what used to be the North Carolina Academy of Trial Lawyers conference versus the North Carolina Association of Defense Attorneys mm-hmm. you know, conference and the the personalities, the dress, the way you guys interacted, it definitely is a different culture. Um, and, and same goes for criminal law. But early in my practice, I did a little bit. We were a general practice firm and I would go in those back rooms and the, the lawyers in there would be smoking still with their <laughs> sport coats. And it was just a different world. I was really like, can I get back over to civil superior court, please? And the, it's it's interesting how I think there's still on the insurance defense side, there's probably still more of the old school, mm-hmm. um, probably still more of the suit and tie or, or that's gone away. There's more business casual, but probably reluctance to change more so than on your side, on the plaintiff side or on the individual or the criminal side. So it, it's been an interesting, uh, it, it is interesting to see that difference on how you can tell if you walk in, I can tell if I'm in an association of defense attorneys conference or if I'm in a um, plaintiff's conference. Sure. Sure. And that's interesting how, not that there's a difference. It's just how you view the law too. And it's, mm-hmm. it's how, you, you know, what your advocacy role is uh, and how, how you're doing it. I don't want to say we're more like tradition or keeping the status quo, but kind of we are and you're more, trying to advocate passionately for and zealously for your client's position. Mm-hmm. That's funny you say that. I remember, um, and I'll just say it was a, we were at a, a meeting where it was for the celebration of the courts. And I don't remember, I think it was for the court of appeals in Raleigh. And we were at um, our alma mater, uh, John and NC state. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the uh, student centers here, Jay, since we were there. In the oh my gosh. Yes. I have been. Yeah. <laughs> But we were upstairs in one of those the great um, hall that they have up there, and they had a re- little reception. And I, I can assure you that the reception um, for the uh, judges uh, is is different than that would be a reception for the North Carolina advocates. For <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. That's a little bit more uh, buttoned up. Um, it was still fun. Yeah, digress for a second but my son actually got accepted to state and was debating that but we did the tour and my gosh i hardly recognize that campus i've been on it for sporting events but i haven't mm-hmm. really looked around and it is um my goodness that's grown a lot since oh. our days there 
Yeah, it's uh, it's unbelievable. I, I, my, my daughter is uh, we. She's a, a tennis player amongst other sports, and um, we did a tennis tournament up there. And I had some time to walk around the campus. And uh, one, I forgot how beautiful the campus is, and two. Uh, I looked at the building names and the ages of some of the buildings, and uh, it's just, it's unbelievable what they've done uh, across the board. And I'm not just talking about like the Centennial Campus and all that. Right. No, no, um, I know what you mean. But so, even that's grown so much. You know, they just started opening that when we were there. Right yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Tremendous amount over there. Right. Well, uh, you mentioned that a judge said, hey, you'd be a good insurance defense lawyer. How did how did you get into that? Was it, you know, I kind of fell into the practice. Um, and you just realized it was something you were good at, it was something you enjoyed. Uh, you mentioned doing some criminal work, which I, I frankly did not know. And I think that's a great background. Uh, I wish more, more lawyers would do that to test out things a little bit. Yeah. Well, yeah, actually, I ended up basically it was the job. I actually had a different job. I was going to move up to D.C. Mm-hmm. And then the, I was going to clerk at a judge up there. And she, her clerk left and she needed somebody right away. So she had to withdraw the office because the only way she could get somebody was to offer them the position for the full year so suddenly here i was coming up on exams without a job luckily uh judge eagles who was teaching um uh, criminal pr- procedure at the time mm-hmm. knew of this firm looking and said i'd be a good fit and shot a resume down with his recommendation and got the job could i again charlotte and gastonia area wasn't where i was really concentrating mm-hmm. it was just a great general practice firm mainly doing insurance defense but they did you know they were in a yeah. For those who don't know, Gastonia is kind of outside of Charlotte, smaller mm-hmm. city, but there are not a lot of lawyers there, so they do a little general practice, even if they have a concentration. It's nothing like in Raleigh or Charlotte with the more right. specialized big firms. So I got to do a mix of everything. I did some family law, I did some criminal, I did some, I did plaintiff's work as well, a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, but obviously mainly on insurance defense. And then after doing that for seven years, we had an opportunity to take this job up here and. That's been it. Two firms in almost thirty years, which long time. But that that was good. I do treasure those times of doing a little bit of everything mm-hmm. because one, it taught me. Unlike you, I do not want to do family law. Mm-hmm. I did enough of that to know I definitely didn't want that. I really, I, I didn't. It was interesting to see the uh, criminal aspect of it and the traffic tickets I would handle and all. But it wasn't anything I wanted to be a career. Same thing with workers' comp doing that as a defense i didn't enjoy that i enjoy what i i i'm one of those few lawyers you ever meet who really enjoys what he does mm-hmm. i enjoy what i do i enjoy practicing law uh, i still it's interesting to me still so i am um, i advocate i'm one of the few who advocates people go to law school i think it's a great profession mm. it's something you should consider doing it's been it's been a fantastic journey and hopefully it will continue for a long time because after this lockdown on ready to go back to work hard. <laughs> right. And I, uh, uh, criminal defense is a type of practice for people who have very short attention spans. And I enjoy the, um, I enjoy going to court. I just enjoy seeing people in court and I miss it terribly. Yeah. I miss seeing, uh, the DAs and the judges and the clerks and the police officers. And, uh, you mentioned the back chambers area. There's a lot of, um, uh, just good natured fun that goes on in the back and talking to one another. And, yeah. Um, that's so true. Yeah. And that's interesting you say that because I remember um, somebody at law school had taught one of the outside attorneys who came in and spoke with us. It mentioned taking time to break bread with other attorneys or sit down and have mm-hmm. a cup of coffee at the courthouse and no, 
And then when I first started practicing, my managing partner had mentioned to me how I need to get over and meet the people, the clerks, the clerk's office and get to know them and get to know the magistrates and get to know all the people. And I did. I would go over every day and chat with them. And it was easier in a small town like that. But mm -hmm. it was very beneficial to hang out at the courtroom and chat with other attorneys and watch other trials. Candidly, if I had a few minutes, I'd sit and watch a trial for a while. That um, was always fascinating to me. And you're right. I can't emphasize enough that it will pay an enormous dividends if you know the clerks and you take a few minutes to get to know them and their lives. And it, it is, they can help you so much in, especially as a younger attorney, getting to know how to do something properly. Sure. Uh, well, uh, clerks are, you know, they're, they're so important because they see so much. And I've had clerks yeah. pull me aside and say, Hey, can I give you some advice? And I'm like, yeah. And say, you may, this legal issue wasn't working for you next time. Try this or, um, Hey, I'll tell you who else give, is really invaluable. And they, and they get on me all the time, court reporters. Cause apparently yep. I get excited and I start speaking quickly and I'm known yeah, I have for the same, same thing. That's exactly. <laughs> so I have the exact same thing. They will tell me to slow down. I get to get going too fast. And they said, if they're having trouble taking it down, the jury's going to have trouble hearing, understanding my right. point. And, and I'm also known for, they say it's called trailing off, which means what happens is we have our thought and we're thinking of our next thought while we're saying our first thought and we tend to lose our volume. Um, and the other thing that, you do that too? Yeah, I do. But I was going <laughs> to tell you my all time thing that I, I have since broken myself up because of this judge. And it wasn't me. It was another attorney. But this judge, uh, well, I'll name him. He's retired now. But Judge Gardner used to be in the 27B district, which was Cleveland Lincoln. Mm -hmm. uh, we had the plaintiff's attorney kept at, after every question, he would say, okay. He'd be like, so what? speed was the vehicle going the person going 55 miles an hour okay so then what did you do and the guy would answer he say okay well the judge kept pointing us to not say okay after your questions because he thought it was an impermissible comment on the testimony <laughs> so he imposed a rule halfway through the trial he sent the jury out because okay i've had it next person says okay after questions we find 50 dollars every time i'm oh, not <laughs> you talk about scared of asking questions you were we were sitting there just absolutely worried to death, more focused on the form of our questions than what we was happening. Cause we're all so worried about being popped for $50. Cause you said, okay. And he, at one point he said, okay. And he went, Oh, oh no, I didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. You say that it's, uh, uh, that's always been a fear uh, of mine of getting called down, uh, for something that the judge didn't like. It was nothing you know, ever intentional, but, um, yeah, that's a that's a really good point. In fact, I had a judge uh, one time say, "Mr. Powers, why do you always stand up when I'm addressing you?" And I said, "Well, I think you can blame uh, maybe Tom Anderson, uh, 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 maybe you said Campbell Law School, yeah, Campbell Law School." And he said, "Well, I noticed you do it for opposing counsel too." And I said, "Yeah, they. I was always told a couple of different rules. When a jury is standing up, you're sitting down." When the judge is uh, standing up or talking to you, you're standing up. And when opposing counsel is standing up as a courtesy, uh, you're supposed to stand up. And uh, I said, stop doing that. <laughs> that's so funny. You know, that's, that's not my experience. My experience has been when, we, when I was there, 
you know, there weren't a lot of Campbell grads West back then. You know, oh, yeah. We were only like the 10th class to come out of Campbell. And you're right. They drilled that into us. And we, I would always ask, may I approach the bench? May I do? Mm-hmm. And then later I was, I was in court one day. I had just gone and the judges, I'd asked to approach and done everything. I was kind of just getting my paperwork filed. And this other attorney went behind me and walked up to the court, to the bench to see the judge. And the judge stopped him going, excuse me, have you asked to approach? And so, and he was looking around kind of startled. And I think the judge liked the fact that I had exercised that deference and formality to mm-hmm. them. To them. And it was, it was just pretty funny because you're right. You're always saying, may it please the court. You, know, you stand all the time and your deference. I think that pays dividends on mm-hmm most courts that's interesting a judge didn't like that because i think they they like the fact you're showing the uh, respect but i gotta tell you you say that and i will remember this i learned this during campbell orientation and i tell every new attorney that we hire and even as an under i'll tell them is during orientation one of the attorneys who came in and spoke to us at campbell said when the map and the terrain differ follow the terrain you will see attorneys follow a map right off the edge of a cliff and I always just thought that was interesting. I have seen that in court more times than I can tell you. They will argue something. You can tell what the judge wants. You can see and read the courtroom and what's happening. And, and they will just fall off the terrain with an mm-hmm. argument or a position that clearly has no interest <laughs> to the judge or the court or the jury. And it's like, what are you doing? I mean, why are you emphasizing this point? It's it's bizarre to see. And it I can't tell you how many times I have seen situations where you've got to read and listen to what the judge is telling you about how to frame like you were talking about the clerks giving you advice i mean i i'm always receptive to advice from clerks and bailiffs bailiffs i find mm-hmm. to be incredibly helpful mm-hmm. on what to emphasize but it's always interesting to me that 30 something years later i remember that so well and i have seen it so many times in practice unless you're prepared to take a trial a case definitely to the court of appeals which early on, you probably are not on most of your trials. Mm-hmm. You, you make your motions for the record, and then you go on and make your objections for the record, but you don't irritate to the judge the point he's ready to throw you in jail. That's a great point. In fact, um, I don't know if you know who he is, a guy named Gordon Winehouse. He he was an adjunct at Campbell, and he worked. Uh, he clerked for Chief Justice Exum, and he's, mm-hmm. he's the premier appellate person in North Carolina, really, in my mind. And... Uh, I was, uh, I think I was teaching a seminar somewhere and Gordon was attendance, which is always a little bit nerve wracking when you have a former professor sitting in your class yeah. who knows more, has forgotten more about the law than you ever learned. And I, as I'm, when I get nervous, I kind of crack wise. And uh, there was a commentary about preserving the record. And uh, I said, well, yeah, that's, that's what I'm sure uh appellate lawyers think, but there's a substantial difference between the reality of a courtroom trial and a, what's on a transcript. Uh, and there's actually an, uh, uh, an instruction uh, when they, the judges give instructions to juries, uh, assuming you use a jury now, we've changed that a little bit, uh, at least in criminal law. And uh, it says that you're not to you know, take any meaning from any expression on my face or anything I've said. And there could be some substantial nonverbals, some shade, yes. some shade throwing, yes. if you will, from the bench. And um, sometimes preserving your record is incongruent with uh, ticking off the judge. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a balance, I think is fair to say. 
that's uh it's so true and i think it's i'm actually glad that like courtroom tv and these other shows are on for people to see because mm -hmm. when you read a cold record on appeal or a case you're like how could a jury have done that or how could a court have decided that but yet if you're actually in the court and you see what's happening or you watch the expressions of some of the witnesses and i will never forget one it was one i just watched i we had a excess policy so i just had to be in the courtroom and watch but it was a doctor had admitted operating on the wrong vertebrae mm. and so okay you think wow this one's gonna be bad that plaintiff was so horrible i cannot tell you how bad she the jury came back with no negligence mm -hmm. he admitted operating on the wrong vertebrae it was like but if you'd seen that by the end of that trial i had no doubt the doctor was going to win because she was during testimony she'd be mimicking or talking friends in the audience in the courtroom she was so oh my gosh no one was going to give that woman money by the end of it it was just incredible i can't believe the plaintiff's attorney didn't keep her in better control or maybe couldn't and just had to go through the motions it was right, right. but the, you're right the nonverbal is so crucial and i tell that to all my clients when they for one i'm trying to listen to the evidence as it comes in mm -hmm. i can't really have them talking to me a lot so i'll hand them a pad and paper and say take notes and i will remind them that a jury is watching them during all the testimony. They're going to be looking over at them. Are they engaged? Are they asleep? Are they acting incredulous? They just need to be acting attentive and polite and not overreact. And if there's anything they want to tell me, make a note and we'll talk about it during a break. But I cannot have them whispering in my ear during testimony because then I'll miss something. And they cannot be over there acting all incredulous about testimony because they're going to look bad to a jury. Absolutely. And, and in fact, I call those heads down lawyers. Um, and we see this a lot in district court um, where people are following a script so tightly during the trial that they're not watching either the judge or the jury to see how they're reacting to the evidence. And um, we used to have a, a jurist in Charlotte. I don't know if you uh, knew him, John, it's a guy named Bill Scarborough. Amazing judge, uh, actually fought in the Battle of Bulge and uh, I used to walk in the courtroom and he'd say, good morning, stretch. And, uh, cause I'm taller. Uh, but he would, he would holler out Latin maxims to let you know what he was thinking. They'd say, allegata non probata. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, I'll let it trickle to the jury and, and things like that. Uh, and I call it heads up lawyering is it's sort of like a conversation. Instead of thinking of your next question, consider for at least a minute, minute, their answer that you're being, you're given. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, one, I definitely go in, I write all my questions to a good degree mm -hmm. because one, it helps me organize them. So I know, keep the topics kind of together as you kind of walk them through what you want, either direct or cross. Mm -hmm. But I do try to make sure I'm not just reading because you're right. It's, you can tell when an attorney is just reading versus following up on the questions and, and they'll ask a question that gives you a great opening or a great segue that people are interested in and and they just go right back to the script but at the same time i like to have a script in case you'll be going along in a trial sometimes and then you'll get to the end of a, a, a point you want to make and then you need to get back on track it's nice to have your questions in front of you real quickly to, mm -hmm. and you can make sure you've covered all of your questions that you need to cover um during your cross or your direct so that you have it for your arguments and your closing argument and your evidence Right. It's a nice checklist to have. Right. You're right. You can't just follow it blindly. And it's it's painful to watch attorneys do that at times. But it's also painful to watch attorneys 
who just kind of fluster around and aren't very organized. Right. And there's, there's theming and, um, um, on a case. And I have a, a friend who always says that preparation trumps brilliance, brilliance every time, meaning that there's no substitute for preparing the case. So that's true. And I, I, it's funny to me watching it, some defense attorneys, especially when I'll have like multiple defendants or something who will basically just regurgitate everything the plaintiff has said and re-ask the question. Like, why are you just letting him reemphasize their testimony? If I, if I cross-examine someone, I try to make sure that it is for something that I want to use in closing argument or it's an impeachment point that I'm trying to make mm -hmm. uh, or, or something of relevance like that. I'm not just going to have them. Re I can have a short cross. I don't care. I'll get in and make 10 points and get out. I don't need to sit there and spend an hour regurgitating everything that just went over. I don't understand why people think length is somehow equivalent to quality. Sure. The, the more the words, less the meaning. Um, mm -hmm. I had a judge one time say, Mr. Powers, when, when the horse dies, get off. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I uh, do that on opening too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have seen people claims, and I'll blame plaintiff's attorneys on this. I don't see defense usually doing this as much doing such a long opening that the jury has gone to sleep during opening. For goodness mm -hmm. sake that, I mean, I, I, it's like they're trying to put on their entire trial during opening. I try to get up and make a few points and sit back down and get on to the trial because I hopefully have already done my opening during jury selection. I, I hope yes. preface the entire case already. Right. And in my opening, it may be something innocuous, not even really relevant, but it's going to be something the evidence proves. So that at the end of the, my closing argument, I can say, didn't I say that car was white? But well, then I prove that car was white. I don't care if it's innocuous. I want to be able to say, I told you the fact would show you a, B and C and the fact showed you a, B and C. Mm -hmm. And instead of, over-promising. And I've seen plaintiff's attorneys who redo the whole trial and things may not go exactly as they expected. And mm -hmm. you've really staked yourself out. Sure. You're just that, giving me areas to attack when you do that. Right. And it's it's interesting because this is where I think there is a substantial similarity be between insurance defense and criminal defense, where we do not bear a burden of proof for production. Right. And we can sit back um, and listen. Now, that's unless you do a counter claim or you're counter suing the other side where you may need to I don't know how often you do that. There may be instances where you do, but. Yeah, uh, it's occasional. But the main one I have more is contributory negligence. I have to prove contributory negligence. So right. um, the burden of proof does fall on me on that one. Um, but you're right. I do get that advantage. I do get some time. And I I do I do think in some respects that gives us a little advantage, but but also not in that, you know, the jury's still fresh when the plaintiff gets them for the most part. Mm -hmm. I get them two or three days later. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm basically trying my case during the plaintiff's case, which can get awkward at times, especially trying to admit evidence or not. Some evidence that has not been admitted yet because I can't admit it yet. So. Sure. I do that as well. In fact, I am one um, more often than not, I will reserve my opening statement. Uh, yeah, that's I, interesting. Uh, I do not like promising things that I don't know will come out in the evidence. Evidence is not always clear what's admissible or not admissible, even Right. We see this more in criminal court, maybe, than civil court. Yeah, you court. get that more. We've done we motions in limine for defense or for a civil trial. You usually know pretty well what's mm -hmm. going to happen at that point, what he's going to allow. Mm -hmm. To a degree, he may give you an indication or ask you to stay away from a topic he hasn't decided on yet. Mm -hmm. So you have some some idea. I mean, that would be uh, our trials. I mean, between motions in limine and then during the jury selection, I mean, a lot of that occurs during, you know, the pretrial stuff. And then 
and and during the pretrial stuff, the judge is finding out how close you are to settlement, pushing you along the way, and kind of indicating, you know. And and it's funny. I'll tell another war story real quick. I had mm-hmm. a trial where I was getting the six shot was just eating me alive down in Wilmington on motions, etc. And he <clears throat> kept calling us in to talk settlement. He finally, after like three days of trials. I think this case is worth X. Can you get X? And it was a good bit more than an offer, but it wasn't unreasonable out of the realm of possibility. And then he goes, you go try and get X. You go get your client to accept X and, and see what we can do. And I went, talked to my client, came back and said, yes, we'll pay X. And the plaintiff's attorney came back, no, we just can't take that. And he goes, what? <laughs> he was not. <laughs> we go back into trial. I didn't have to open my mouth. Anything I wanted suddenly was fine. It was all my objections that were being sustained. And he was going to make that plaintiff's attorney's life miserable. Now that he saw he was the unreasonable one, not me. And it was about after about half day of it, the plaintiff's attorney, is that offer still on the table? Right. <laughs> so we ended up settling the case. And that was one where the judge kind of drove that case. And that happens a lot, but that's getting back to, and it wasn't an unreasonable settlement on either party. It was one where probably both sides were a little disappointed, which, Means is probably a good result because at the end of the day, somebody was going to be very disappointed when that jury decided. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I've, uh, I've had judges that, um, you know, we'll do a pretrial chambers conference and they'll say, Mr. Powers, is your client, uh, fully aware of the consequences of a conviction? And, um, you know, I'm not required to follow what some other judge may have said or done. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it's a pretty good indication. Well, and um, say, you know, I wish you all the best, and I'm going to let you try your case. But let me tell you, I uh, <laughs> um, judges are given a lot of discretion. So um, I kind of like that, to tell you the truth. I'd rather uh, kind of know what I'm going into. Uh, yeah, I, I don't to- disagree. Um, I don't mind a judge pushing within reason. I mean, mm-hmm. I've had some judges push too much where I felt, it was unfair. I mean, mm-hmm. and I don't want to just let, let the case mm-hmm. be tried. I mean, let me, let, let me try my case and treat me fairly. And I, I don't like seeing it anyway. Some judges, I mean, you hear it all the time, the robitis or the act like that they want to control everything or act all superior. And that, that gets irritating no matter how they do it. And I don't see that very often. Mm-hmm. It's pretty rare. Um, most judges, I think, are do try to do the right thing and do try to you know, make fair rulings and let the facts fall where they may. But you occasionally run across one who, for some reason, mm-hmm. decides that he's the center of attention rather than just the referee guiding the mm-hmm. process. I, I find that um, exceedingly rare now. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I'm, maybe it's because I'm older. And um, yeah, I was wondering that too. And, and maybe with all the gray hair. That, Right. And the other problem is, um, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about this, but John, it, unfortunately, in our stage of our career, uh, we're more on the high wire, the tight wire, whatever you want to call it. Um, you're getting these extraordinarily complicated cases mm-hmm. um, that are not always crystal clear factually. Causality can be a real problem. You had mentioned... Um, uh, contributory negligence, you know, there, it's more than just contrib. There's something called last clear chance. And mm-hmm. we're dealing with uh, witnesses who everyone is doing their best and everyone's proceeding in good faith, but the human brain and the observations can vary. And there can be a substantial yeah. difference between two people watching the same thing and describing it completely different, differently. Yeah. And uh, sometimes in those cases, 
you know, I found essentially we just can't work this out. We want to, we just can't. There's a, just a substantial difference between causality or in criminal case, you know, identification or, or something uh, like that. So, um, well, you, you mentioned that the criminal, and I will say that is one aspect I've always liked about what I do mm-hmm. in that if I try a case and lose, I mean, basically the insurance company pays more than they wanted to pay. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I go to bed at night, not worrying that somebody's in jail because I didn't do something. So I don't, uh, I've always admired your ability or an other criminal defense attorney just to do what you do because the pressure on me, while it may be great, is nothing compared to the pressure on that you guys face. And having handled just a few little assault cases and other minor criminal matters, the stress of those was just, and on domestic cases too, the stress I just thought was extraordinary. And I, I, I have always admired your ability to handle those type of cases because it's a different world. I appreciate you saying that. I don't know if it's entirely true because I'll, I'll tell you, you do some professional negligence and, uh, you know, you and I are legal professionals. You represent other professionals and, um, uh, there's like zero room for ever making a mistake and, and you don't want to ruin someone's career. Um, Oh yeah. I mean that, uh, that, those bother me as much as anything because it's their, yeah, their licensing. And mm -hmm. and even if you can keep their license, if they have something on it, it's going to make it, especially if you don't feel they did anything wrong, right. Some technical reading of the rule that can get very, difficult because they, they admit to some innocuous little hand slap well then they've got something on the record now and if they do something else in the future it's more problematic but, right. and it's also their livelihood if they right. lose their license it's right very difficult but yeah i know what you mean that then that, that's a good indicate but again even if it's bad they're they might lose their livelihood but they're still not locked up for mm. a number of years I do a fair amount of DWI work in North Carolina, and DWI is sort of the emergency room of criminal charges. Uh, it, it crosses every socioeconomic status, every educational level, every age group. And the consequences, um, while a lot of people don't go to jail, on, at least on the first offense, you can, by the way. Uh, but, yeah. the, but the consequences of a conviction from uh, job uh, insurance um, it's unbelievable uh, how high the pressure is now for a driving while impaired. So yeah, I've, I've talked to a few years ago some of my criminal uh, defense friends who do a lot of DWI who were saying it's almost easier to do a murder case than it is a DWI given the restrictions that are in the statutes now. But have you seen a um, reduction since Uber and Lyft and others have come around too? Uh, to some extent, yes, and I've um, it's. Uh, Yes, the number of the number of DW. There's several factors going on, and there. And I would think it'd be a mistake to assume uh, that there isn't an Uber and Lyft factor, at least in the larger metro regions uh, like Charlotte, yeah. Wake County. I don't think it accounts, frankly, for the substantial drop in numbers in Eckler County over the last ten or fifteen years. Uh, DWI has become more difficult to try, though, because everyone assumes. Uh, well, why would you even take a chance? Um, right. Um, if there's Uber and Lyft available, and I, I can tell you, I, 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 with almost without exception, I mean, I hate to be hyperbolic about this, but the vast, vast, vast majority of my clients say, "Well, I'm not in favor of DWI. I'm not in favor of drunk driving. I would never drunk drive, or you know, and until they get caught, until mm-hmm. they get pulled over, and and they're surprised, and there there are different reasons for that. Um, and I'm not talking about people that blow twice the legal limit. 
Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm talking about people that are right on the borderline. And, and um, this was something that the governor's task force really worked on was trying to, you know, an educational aspect of things. I, I personally wish we would put um, little markings on the glasses like they do in Europe so that people know how much they're getting and the relative strength of things and educating people when they're in high school and getting their license and things like that. So, uh, yeah, but we've seen so much of it in court and, you know, in auto wrecks too, given the mm-hmm. potential for punitive damages for absolutely drunk driving and an accident. You're right. It can sneak up on them. And it's been something I've been very cognizant in my own career because it's not anything I want <laughs> to have happen to me. Right. Know? Right. And punies, the cap on punies doesn't apply on drunk driving cases. So, um, whereas right. you may have a quarter million dollar punitive damages cap, that's not the case in um, impaired driving cases. Uh, the sky's the limit. Yeah. So, um, well, John, you mentioned something, and I and I'm, I'm I'm going over time, but I've got I mean, I've got this font of information. I've got to ask you some questions about sure. some of these okay. areas. I appreciate Sorry. you taking the time. No, no, it's 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 been really a pleasure speaking with you and kind of catching up. Um, and we're talking about drinking. We're talking about drink drunk driving, and you said something you even watch yourself uh, on my side of the aisle. And we talked about differences of personalities and things. I've seen a lot of what I call flame outs with lawyers, um, meaning that uh, you know they're the hot Roman candle from the uh, Texas Panhandle, and they just they're they're bright light, and they and then something happens in their personal life, whether it's uh, alcohol, substance abuse issues, mental health issues, where uh, it's just this flame out, a meltdown. It's t- terrible. Um, and you had mentioned that you were very satisfied in your job and you have uh, fulfillment in, in what you do. Um, what do you think about the status of mental health and substance abuse issues in, in, in the profession right now? Uh, it's clearly a huge problem. I mean, I, we see it a lot. I've, I've seen people go through exactly what you were talking about, the flame out, the addiction, the alcoholism. It, it, is a, it is a major problem and the mental stress. And I'm not denying there's a lot of it. And there's certainly days I feel like chucking it all and mm-hmm. just going fishing. Um, but it, uh, and I, I have felt some of, I wouldn't say burnout, but more transition that definitely as I've gotten older um, and I'm doing more managerial and teaching, et cetera. Um, it's not quite the same as when I was, you know, young hotshot wanting to prove myself in trial all the time either. And mm-hmm. I'm, it, um, it's certainly, uh, it is a huge problem. I, I can't under, I cannot understate how bad it is. You're right. And I don't, I don't fully always understand it to a degree, but I, it is something I've been cognizant of when you're talking about like alcohol, um, that you do need to be aware of that because there are so many attorneys who I know who are, you know, either borderline or, or actually are alcoholics. And it's, it's just an easy crutch if at the end of a hard day or during the day you or relying on that or other means. And, and sometimes the stress of the job, can I do this? Oh my God, it's so overwhelming. There's too much to do. I mean, that, that can overwhelm the best of people. So, so far I've been able to avoid a lot of that. And again, as I've gotten older, doing things that have inspired me, like the teaching, I find that very interesting. And mm-hmm. it's, um, and I do a lot of the litigation management, which means I kind of oversee a lot of mm-hmm. what people are working on. So I get a taste of a lot to make sure things are moving along. So it's not as much in the down in the trenches type work. Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about all the interrogatories and the going through all the discovery. I'm making sure it gets done and I'm overseeing it. 
but it's not as much as the old having to slug through it myself. So that's kind of helped, I think. Mm-hmm. If I were still doing that, I could see that getting old. And I, like I mentioned, the different offices, I do a lot of travel. And, and of course, travel to seminars that I either attend or teach, mm-hmm. which has helped keep it active and interesting. And it's been, uh, especially on the trucking litigation, there have been a lot of changes in how plaintiff's attorneys are attacking trucking companies over the years. Mm-hmm. And that's been fascinating to watch um, and learn and try to represent the companies to help them navigate the uh, judicial landscape because it can get rather tough. Even in North Carolina, there have been some bad verdicts and bad situations against trucking companies. There's a bias that you have to kind of deal with and, and realize is there. And the plaintiff's attorneys have done a good job exploiting that. And if you're not prepared for it, you will get a very bad verdict and be very surprised. It's it's more complicated. I think most people realize because there can be a difference between the front end of the truck and the load in the back and who packed yeah. the load and and uh it's and it's uh, still an eighty thousand pound vehicle right. traveling down the road at sixty five miles an hour has a lot of forces in, in effect and and if you present that well, I mean that's a lot of arguments to overcome. Subject to some pretty complex both federal and state laws as well. So true. And so. and the worst thing is that the the trucking companies' websites where they talk about safety, safety, safety being their biggest priority, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, well, just hand a plaintiff's attorney a, a, a meat cleaver and go after you. My gosh, you're just <laughs> so it's when, when was the last time you checked your brakes? Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, that's what yeah, I was like, yeah. well, you know, I had to get that load by X hour. And, right, you know, right. Yeah, thought safety was your priority. Right. Well, John, let me, let me ask you this because um, you mentioned several different things. Um, and I, I love seeing uh, the dads following the kids around. And um, you and I mi- just missed one another. I hated it. But for a basketball yeah, no. game in Charlotte, your son was playing my daughter's school. Um, and, and I call that the work-life balance. And uh, uh, I, I always apologize to Rick Rogers because um, uh, law, law office management, I, at the time of law school, I was just like, um, let's just say it wasn't my most – it wasn't the most compelling, interesting class to me. And it turns out it was one of the most important. <laughs> yeah, classes. I say, it's funny. I really enjoyed that class. I thought he was excellent on a lot of what he said. Uh, I remember reading Foomberg and all that. But, yeah. um, uh, and it's become a tome of cert, sorts, you know, called work life balance. Um, right. But what hobbies do you have outside of law? You're obviously a very uh, active with the Qantas Club, which I think is amazing. You won a yeah. pretty major award for them. But what do you, what do, you do? Well, that's. Interesting. I was going to say, backing up on the work-life balance is that's one thing I like about the law. If I'm not in court, I have a lot of flexibility about when I do an answer or when I do a response. So I can go to my son's games and I can travel with him to game or do things in his life. I've got my phone with me, so you know, my off if I need to, I am in touch with people. So I can be at the beach or like you, or I can be down in Florida visiting my parents or at the office and still Mm -hmm. be in touch uh, with everybody. But no, I'm a little like you. I love to fish. I love to um, travel and see things. And it's been interesting, you know, having a high school age son who's one. I'm really disappointed, too, in that no school right now during this quarantine, uh, because this is senior year. You know, it was last semester. Mm -hmm. I was looking forward to doing some stuff with him because he signed his letter of intent. So he can't play basketball with AAU right now. So Mm. he has got two years. We wouldn't have free weekends. We weren't having AAU tournaments or anything. So. I was looking forward to some weekend trips, New York, et cetera, and over this period of time, doing a few more things with him before he we went off to college. 
Right, right. right. Which means, and some people don't realize this, is that if you're uh, a committed athlete, uh, I don't know if it's an NCAA rule or, or college yeah. rule, but uh, they don't want you getting hurt. Yeah, <laughs> you can't play. Yeah, you got to <laughs> practice, but you can't play in actual games. So, um, yeah, that's funny about your playing your daughter's high. That's probably his worst game of the entire year when I played you guys. But that was. I actually saw him play. Just that you and I, uh, it was at a different game than that yeah. particular one. I think it was regular season versus post uh, season. Right. And I remember watching him. And I think I think what kind of got you and I um, talking again is I had posted a picture socially. It was a picture of your son, oh, yeah. uh, if I remember uh, correctly. Yeah, and I uh, said, that's my son. <laughs> I you know, I, it's been good. Facebook has been, despite, you know, it's a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways. I've been great to catch up with family and friends again through Facebook and other social media. It has been a nice way to uh, interact. And like with you, you're incredibly active with your daughter and what all she done and i'd love to see your fishing trips because i enjoy fishing too and man you do haul in a lot so well i i don't know i i uh if if you look at the time fish ratio it's probably not, <laughs> it's probably not very efficient yeah, probably. Uh, so that that doesn't make the uh, facebook when you just post the sitting here for several hours with nothing happening but well who would have thunk it john i when i think back at uh at campbell when we went there and um uh, it was it was hard for a Campbell lawyer to get a job, and 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 right. John, you obviously were a really really good student, and I can promise a lot of listeners you don't just have active or past judges writing letters of recommendation. If you want to clerk for a judge, you got to be top of your class. Um, but that class was was or is now, um, and I think always was, and uh, so precious to me and the people that. Uh, we graduated with were amazing people and they, and someone was doing something right when they, when they picked that class in my mind. That It's funny you say that because I have stayed in touch with so many people from that class over the years still. Right. Either um, seeing them around. And of course, probably one of the ones I was closest to Paul Sheridan, unfortunately and passed away last year. So uh, yeah, I love that funeral. And that was, uh, it's hard to believe we've been out that long that people are starting to pass away then. It's been tough, but it's been good. And Facebook as well have caught back up with a few other people because like you said, it was an incredibly close and special class and there were some great people in it and some very interesting personalities. <laughs> but don't, don't forget too, we were, um, we were at the time had set the standard for the bar passage rate for Campbell. You know, we had 98% pass. Oh, I forgot about that. We, um, well, Cam- it was a pretty bright group. So, and Campbell accepted some non-traditional people um people who maybe yeah. maybe not you know had the best uh lsat score or something or um boy you said personalities it's so funny as I, I talked to lee bentley not that long ago and yeah what a great guy and i think of lee and, and jay vanoy and that crew and then i oh, think yeah. of you and i think of paul share you know paul was a jimmy buffett guy and um shannon wharf and danny hockaday and i mean we we knew everybody in our class because they're only, oh, yeah. what did we graduate? Like 105 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. It was pretty low. And we had all our classes together. And we, um, it yeah, was, that was nice. Plus, we were down in Bowie's Creek. <laughs> uh, not, it wasn't in Raleigh, which is a great city. You know, it was nothing to, you know, is it interesting because you come home. Part of the reason you study hard is you have a lot else to do. You watch some TV, you study, you get together with the classmates for a little bit. Right, right. And I lived in the law dorm actually all three years. I lived in Layton, which is, has mm-hmm. since been knocked down. And I'm still really close uh, with those guys. Um, 
young Kevin Jones and Barbara oh, yeah. and, and all those, those, those fun people. Um, you know, it reminds me of that old, um, and John, I don't know if you're from Raleigh or North Carolina, I remember the old Mount Olive pickle commercial they had. Oh, yeah. Golly. And they said, why do we make pickles in Mount Olive, North Carolina? Because there ain't nothing better to do. <laughs> and uh, and that was in law school. Why did, why did so many people study in law school in Bowie's Creek? And and I don't mean no offense to Campbell or Bowie's Creek. I will mention uh, that the law school is now in Raleigh. Uh, yes. It's at old, the old Patterson Dilthey building. But um, uh we were a tight knit group. We studied together. We were in the same classrooms together. We, we hung out at the, um, Dunn's women, Dunn women's club. And, um, I don't remember that place. We, on Wednesday nights, we'd go somewhere and, and play pool and listen to the same 10 yeah, songs. Or the, the barn or something like that. There's the missing barn. a wall on one side. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when they, uh, raised the prices on their pickled eggs. I, I was upset. <laughs> Well, I just love, I, I did not live in the dorm. I lived in this little house apartment we rented. Mm-hmm. And, and my wife, who is an attorney as well, was flabbergasted because I never signed a lease. And she said, you know, he can change it. He can kick you out. All three years, I lived in the same place. He never raised it at all. Everything mm-hmm. was fine. And it was it was just on a handshake. Everything. And now I right. look back, whoa, whoa, I didn't have a lease. I didn't have this. Did you live with a bunch of guys or was it you and someone else? Well, it was me and Torn Fury for the okay. first couple of years, and then Rick Rogers the last year, you know, a year behind me. So it was just great guy. Well, I haven't heard of either of those names. I haven't talked to him so long. And it was it was a little congregation of some little houses that were all rented over there. Down the street was uh, Scott Hanby and Jay Wilkerson and Baker McIntyre, and across from me, um, Philip uh, Philip Miller was back there, and uh, who was that? Philip Wood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they were all there. And Shannon wasn't too far away, and Catherine Wiggins and Leah. Right, so. was that Coates where you were, or was yeah, that? Okay. exactly, yeah, the metropolis thereof. So. Right, Coates is where we used to. I remember there was the uh, a little gas station where they had a Venn debate, where out front <laughs> it was like a Coke machine <laughs> you could buy crickets and worms and stuff like that. So. <laughs> I know people who go to Campbell now don't have a full appreciation for what uh, Campbell Law School, especially mm-hmm. in Raleigh, don't have appreciation for what we had with the i mean there was not a traffic light for sure when we were there i mean it was in the middle of a tobacco field it really literally was nothing around it but and like you said it did allow us to grow really close as a class and it did study hard and i think most of us like you said non-traditional but we were ready to study it wasn't like we'd gone to college and then we we're ready for law school many of us had worked in the interim and were ready to study harder and new start a career and I, I have to, I, I feel compelled to give a shout out to those professors because when I think of oh, yeah. uh, Pat Hattrick and uh, Jimmy Mack and even the chief and Rick Lord and Tom Anderson and Jim Jenkins and Alan Button, um, yeah, I'm, of course, I'm thinking those were our first year teachers for the most part. Yeah. Um, what an amazing uh, group. How patient uh, uh, they were. And uh, Campbell has changed. I actually uh, have been back a time or two. Um, uh, my daughter uh, played a tennis tournament there and they've got a giant camel uh, in front of the, uh, uh, I guess it's a student center there now. So mm. I, told- I have not been back to Campbell itself. I've been back, I've been to the new law school mm-hmm. down in Raleigh, but I haven't right. been there, but that's, but I still run into Tom Anderson a lot. And you're right. I've thanked him on many, many occasions because his knowledge of civil procedure, I have used so many times mm-hmm. over the times and, and it's probably one of the most useful classes that I ever took. I love Tom. I, I love Professor Jenkins and uh, 
Yeah. I always liked uh, Pat Hetrick and, and McLaughlin's classes yeah. as well. They were uh, just truly excellent uh, teachers. No, you're right. Um, there was a good crop of them. Uh, yeah. So experienced teachers knew what they were talking about. So, uh, well, if you're considering law school, I think uh, John Nolan right. and I will give a thumbs up to well, uh, Campbell will, Law School. And um, I'll, I'll strongly recommend law school, too. I mean, anybody who tells you otherwise, I'm like, I know it's expensive. I know it's a lot, but I think there's a, a lot to be said for it. But. Well, John, um, it was great catching up with you, and I, I hope uh, we can see you each too, other. my friend. And, uh, yeah. and, and congratulations and kudos to you and your career and what you've and done. you, too. And, um, and you too. And congratulations to your daughter. I'll be looking forward to seeing on Facebook all her accolades coming forth. Well, I hope they get to have school in the fall. That's well, the enemy yesterday. Apparently, you're going to do it. And my daughter is a spring sport. She's a uh, lacrosse player, and so she's going to be going to uh, the University of South at Swanee. And John, where's yours going? He's going to Juniata up in Pennsylvania oh, near great. Um, Penn State. So great, it's a small private liberal arts school. So right, and he'll be uh, playing basketball there. So nice, nice. Is he a number two? What's he? Is he shooting? Shooting guard was, yeah, shooting guard. Okay. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The two. Yeah. So, well, if you have a question, if you'd like to, uh, John, not only to teach a class, John, what's a good way to people reach you? Uh, my email is the best. Uh, J Nunnally, no spaces. N U N N A L L Y at R L dash law.com. Right. And if you have, uh, questions or topics of interest uh, for Law Talk, uh, you can uh, reach us at uh, lawtalkwithbillpowers at gmail.com. John, thank you so much. And uh, it's been thank a pleasure you, speaking to you. It's a real honor to catch up and fascinating talk on some of these issues that you we kind of think about, but don't really talk about that much. Well, thank you so much, brother. Take care. You've been listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing legal questions on your time. Ready to discuss your matter now? Call 704-342-HELP for your free and totally confidential consultation. That's 704-342-4357. Law Talk with Bill Powers is an educational resource only. The information presented on this podcast does not constitute legal advice and is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney. Every situation is unique. Therefore, you should always consult with a licensed attorney before making any legal decisions. Thanks for listening.